All right, 15 minutes. 15 minutes of us allowing the Scripture to speak to our hearts. The question is, why? Why would we take the time to read the entire story of Ruth once again? Let me tell you why. Because it is only when you read the the story from beginning to end that you get to see that our God is a God of great reversals. That our God, the God we worship, is the God that is making all things new. Why do I say that? Because the beginning of the story in Ruth chapter 1 is a description of someone that is going and people that is going through extremely difficult situations. But when you read Ruth chapter 4, you see that God is resolving all those problems. Actually, the way to read Ruth chapter 1 and Ruth chapter 4 is like parallels. What was messing up here in Ruth chapter 1, the Lord is fixing here in Ruth chapter 4. The pain that that was struggling here in Ruth chapter 1, the Lord is healing here in Ruth chapter 4. That the pain that was suffering, the pain that caused suffering to people here in Ruth chapter 1, the Lord is redeeming here in Ruth chapter 4. Because our God is the God of great reversals, is the God that is making all things new. As I was prepping for this sermon, I remembered a phrase that was um, written or said by Elizabeth Elliot. And this is what she said. Of one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story never ends with ashes. Let me say that again because that was kind of depressing. (laughs) Of one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story never ends with ashes. Do me a favor. Can you look at the person next to you and repeat this phrase? God's story never ends with ashes. Question for you. Do you believe it? We'll see. (laughs) Let me start by giving you and reminding you a little bit of the context, right? Because this is such a beautiful story, and sometimes when we listen to beautiful stories, we forget the context of the story. You would think that everything is going smooth. You would think that the population in the area are all living for the glory of God. You would think that things are going so well that, of course, the, Ruth of, uh, the story of Ruth has to finish that way. Let me remind you that in the context of the story comes in the book of Judges. And Judges 21 makes it super clear what was happening at that time in that culture uh, with that people. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In other words... People did what they wanted. And the question, that I ha- the question that I have been asking for the last four weeks, and actually feel last week as well, is how does one live in the midst of a world like that? How is it that Christians ought to respond in the midst of chaos? Because I think that we all agree that the description of Judges 21 is very similar to the time and culture in which we live today. We too live in a world in which everyone does as they please. Because King Jesus is not the king of all. So it's interesting when you hear people talking about this, and some people would say, well, I think that the solution for Christians is to do the Forrest Gump thing. Run, Forrest, run. 
Hide as much as you can. Create your only, your little Christian community. Separate from the world as much as you can. Some other people would say, no, that's not the way you're going to deal with that. The way we have to deal with that is to assimilate. Because if we can beat them, let's unite to them. That's how Christians are going to survive, they would say. What is interesting that when you read the scriptures, that's never an option. None of those two things are ever an option for Christians. We are never given the permission to run away from the world and to hide. And we are never given permission to assimilate and to adapt and embrace the beliefs of the culture. Actually, what the Bible is going to call us to do, and you can see that clearly in Ruth chapter 4, is that the call of the believer by God to the believer is that for us to remain faithful, loving God and loving others, even in the midst of chaos. Man, I wish you would have given me an amen on that one. <laughs> the call from Nasli, the Lord from the, the call from the Lord is that his people live in this world without being of the world, remaining faithful to be remaining faithful by loving God and loving others. Much better. (laughs) But in order for us to do that, we need to remember that God's story never ends with ashes. You won't survive unless that's a core conviction. You won't survive unless you know that our God is the God of great reversals. And that even in the midst of chaos, he's making all things new. And that there's always beauty, even in the midst of brokenness. And that he will use you, even in the midst of brokenness. Why? Because God always takes his people from rejection to redemption, or from resentment to restoration, or from ruin to renewal. Let me say that again. Because God always takes his people as he's making all things new from rejection to redemption or from resentment to restoration or from ruin to renewal. God's story never ends with ashes. How about we say it again together? God's story never ends with ashes. Let's go with point number one. From rejection to redemption. Um, let me remind you again that when, as, as we go through this chapter, you have to keep in mind chapter 1. You have to remember how this, the story started. Because if you forget chapter 1, then chapter 4 doesn't make much sense. And if you remember in Ruth chapter 1, uh, the context of the story is actually really painful. I would say that Ruth falls under the category of the rejected. Now, why would I say that? Well, she's a widow, right? Now, as a widow, she doesn't have the protection of the husband or the provision of the husband. She is poor. She is living with her older mother-in-law. She's moving from Moab to Bethlehem. Therefore, she's losing her family, her religion, and her land. You could say that she's losing her sense of security. And once she gets to Bethlehem, 
most likely she will be rejected by the community because she is a Moabite. If you remember, there are fights between the Israelites and the Moabites. They have a really shady history. And therefore, anybody that would see this Moabite would say, you don't belong to us. Actually, when you look at the entire story, you realize that the person that has sacrificed the most in the entire story has been Ruth, the rejected one. But the reason why we got to keep in mind the phrase that God is a God of great reversals and that God is making all things new is because the beginning, the chapter one is not the end of the story. It's chapter four. Now, if you remember, for those of you that were here last week or listened to the sermon from last week, chapter three finishes with Boaz trying to help Naomi and Ruth by going to look for what this man is, what, what, what the Bible calls a guardian redeemer. Now, a guardian redeemer had the responsibility to help the family, to, pro- to provide for the family, and to protect the family. The guardian redeemer was a relative that was not the husband, not the brother, or anything like that. It was a relative that had the responsibility, once again, to help provide and protect. Now, verse 3 tells us, that Naomi wants to sell her land. Now, I don't think that's a, the proper translation of the phrase. What, it, what happens, uh, many scholars believe, is that prior to Elimelech, Noah's, Naomi's wife, um, husband, moving to Moab, he sold his land because of necessity. And now that Naomi's coming back, she wants to buy the land back But as a woman, back in those days and in that culture, she couldn't buy it by herself. Therefore, she was trying to sell the right to be able to buy the land back through a guardian redeemer. In other words, by her finding the guardian redeemer, not only she was going to be able to get her land back, but now the guardian redeemer and her will share that land forever. Now, I want to give you a piece of context here because I think it's super important. So pause with what I just said and pay attention to what I'm going to say right now. And don't get lost as much as you can. Part of the context of the story is that scholars believe that um, the Israelites, they were right about to go into a year that is called the year of Jubilee. That I'm, I'm assuming that a lot, of us are, a lot of you guys are familiar with that. The year of Jubilee happened every 50 years. And what scholars believe is that during this time in the the book of Ruth, the year of Jubilee is approaching. Keep that in mind. Now, the year of Jubilee is super important because it was this amazing celebration for the Israelites once every 50 years. Now, why was that amazing? Crazy if we were to do something like that today. Because if you had sold your property because you were broke... During the year of Jubilee, the person that bought it for you had the responsibility to return it to you, free of charge. How many of you guys would like that? (laughs) Imagine that you owe $20,000 in your credit card, which that would be super irresponsible. But that the person that you owe the money to says, you know what, forget the $50,000. If you had sold yourself into slavery because you were poor, During the year of Jubilee, that person will be set free. During the year of Jubilee, if you had a loan and you were paying that loan, that loan will be forgiven. 
During that year of Jubilee, even the land will take a break. Nobody was able to work the land, not to glean it or do anything on it, for two reasons. So the land could rest and for the poor could get food for a whole year. Every 50 years. Actually, church history and the history of the Israelites uh, proves that the, that the Israelites actually had a really hard time celebrating that. And that when you trace it down, they didn't do this the way they were supposed to. I wonder why. That's the context. That's what's happening. Now let's get into the text. And this is where Boaz comes into the picture. Now remember, Boaz needs to look for this guardian redeemer. And in verse 1 he says that he went to the town gate and sat down there. This is the place where business take place. Judicial business take place. Notice the word just. And there just as the guardian redeemer was passing by. If you have been tracking with us, this is the same word that is found in chapter 1, same word that is found in chapter 3, same word that you find here in chapter 4, in which it talks about the providence and the sovereignty of God. And then Boaz calls this man, and he says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Now listen, that phrase friend is not like the way we use it, friend. See, the way I call, if I see any of you and I don't know you, I will use the name either brother or sister because that's really easy, or friend. But all scholars agree that when Boaz is using the term friend, he's not being nice. Actually, the name in the original is more like, hey, you. How offensive is that? You know what? Hey, you. Now, we know that Boaz doesn't have... He's a man of character. He's a godly man. He doesn't see himself as superior. So why is he using this term, hey you, to talk to this man? Well, every single scholar agree. In saying that the reason why he's using this term is because that's a description that tells you something about his character. He's not respected in society. He's not like the holy one walking around. Actually, he should have known about Naomi and Ruth, and for some reason, he hasn't done anything. This is a man that most likely doesn't have a good reputation, and Boaz knows that. And Boaz says, hey, you, aren't you supposed to be taking care of these people? Now, in verse 4, Boaz tells him, listen, you have the right as the first uh, relative to buy this land for Naomi. Now, it's super interesting, the reaction of this man. Because in verse 4, when he says, look, you have Naomi, an older lady, she's selling her land, and look at the response. Verse 4. Verse 4. <laughs> I will redeem it. Now, it's so interesting because you can read the tone there. But that's actually what happened. You know, he went high. Eh, that's what he did. <laughs> it's almost like if the man is doing, my, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And everyone will look at him and say, aw, he's so good. Except boss. That know his character. And that he knows that he's been indifferent to Naomi and Ruth. 
he knows that most likely this man is after the land, but doesn't want to do anything for Naomi nor Ruth. He knows that this enthusiastic response most likely comes from selfishness and greediness. And that's why Boaz asks in verse number 5, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. A reminder that Ruth is not an Israelite. The dead of the man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. If you remember one of the sermons, we explained that this community, they don't think about the individual and then the community. The community is always first before the individual. And Boaz is reminding this man that this was not just about buying the land and getting more property and getting, more, and getting richer, if you will. That he had a responsibility not just to buy the land, but to take care of Naomi, to take care of Ruth, to, have, to marry Ruth, to have babies with Ruth, so that the name of the relative will not be forgiven. Ah, uh, forgotten. Thank you. Now, something happens in this man's heart. Now is like, man, I wanted land, but now I have all these things? Oh, man, I wanted to get rich, but do I have to deal with this old lady? He didn't, that's what he's saying. You know what's interesting? Nothing says that Ruth was a beautiful woman. So if you think that Ruth was a beautiful woman, you are bringing into the text something that is not there. Actually, the Bible makes it clear when a woman was beautiful, physically speaking. Nothing says so maybe, maybe, just maybe, this guy is saying, man, land, but an older lady, man, land, but this lady is not pretty. Man, land, and I have to have babies? And just as fast as he says, I'll do it, I'll do it, he says, I can't do it. I can't, I can't, I can't redeem her. You do it. <laughs> It's not good for me, but I'm sure it's good for you. I mean, I would do it. You know I would do it. I, I just can't do it. You do it. Why is this man reacting like this? Well, let me offer some suggestions. Why I think that he's responding that way. He knows that by redeeming the land, there will be an extra expense by also bringing into the family Naomi and Ruth. And he's not willing. He also knows that by buying the land and marrying Ruth, there will be some ethnic implications. Meaning that now everyone in town will see him as the Israelite that got married to a stranger, a Moabite. I would never marry a person like that. Three, he knows that Ruth is young. He knows that they're supposed to get married and have children. Therefore, there will be less for his own children. And number four, he knows that even if Naomi passes away, if he had a plan about, so, so if this is during the year of Jubilee, Part of his dynamic is, man, this lady is going to die, and then I don't have to share it. But if Ruth is young, and Ruth is going to have a baby, then the land also belongs to Ruth and the babies, 
less for him. So root rejected in chapter 1 continues to be root rejected in chapter 4. By a man that puts things before people. Personal security before generosity. Ethnic preferences before compassion. And greed before love. You know what he's doing? He's actually acting the same way a secular person without God would act. This is all about the survival of the fittest. See, you and I are part of a culture in which people talk about loving one another, caring for one another, accepting one another, but their own philosophy of life, their own worldview do not allow them to leave that out. You know why? Because at the end of the day, if God is not king, if God is not present, at the end of the day, it's only about the survival of the fittest. There is no reason why I should care for the widow and the orphan. There's no reason why I should help the poor. There's no reason why I should do anything for anybody in need. Because at the end of the day, it's about the survival of the fittest. But Christianity offers something completely different. It's because we worship a God that is in the business of the great reversals. And it is because we have a God that is in the business of making all things new that Boaz responds... The opposite of the way, the, the way this man responds. In verse 9, he says that he bought the property. And in verse 10, he says that he marries Ruth, the rejected one. See, Boaz knows what he's stepping into. He knows that he's going to have to sacrifice. He knows that it's going to be extra expense. He knows that he most likely will be rejected by the community. He knows that people will label him as the one that married that ethnicity that you're not supposed to marry. He knows that he's an older man in the eyes of a, of a community acting like a fool. And yet, he chooses to do that. Why? Because he knows that he's got to put people before things, put generosity before personal security, he puts compassion before ethnic preferences, and he puts love before anything else. How does one live in the midst of chaos? How does one live in the midst of problems? How does one live in the midst, in the midst of a world in which there's no king and people do as they please? You stick to your convictions. You love the Lord and you love people in word and in deed. You remain faithful to the Lord even if everything in your surroundings is not doing. Now, you would think that in chapter 4, Boaz is the hero of the story. I mean, I just talked about him for about 10 minutes. How about if I tell you that the hero, the hero of the story in chapter 4 is not Boaz. It's Ruth. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Nobody's saying, wow, Boaz, you're so amazing. Nobody's saying, wow, Boaz, I want to be like you when I grow up. Actually, the person that gets elevated in the text is Ruth. Verse 11. Ruth gets some compared to Rachel. Leah and Tamar. 
Three very important females, strong females, figures in the history of the Israelites. Three women that I love the way this scholar describes it. Women of humility joined with power and sensitivity with guts. That's what I'm praying, that's what I'm praying for my daughters. Not only she gets elevated to the position of these amazing uh, historical figures, but the way they talk about her love is unheard of. No one in the scripture has been described that way. No one in Christianity has ever been described that way except her. So she gets married. She has the baby. She gives the baby to Naomi. The community is rejoicing, and this is what they tell Naomi in verse 15. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that the word seven, the number seven, is always important. The word seven always is completeness or perfection or ideal. And they are using this Ruth. The rejected one as an example of complete, perfect, ideal love. You know what's ironic about this story? That the Israelites were called by God in Leviticus chapter 19 to love the strangers. And here you have Ruth, a stranger, teaching them how to love. Question. Why would this chapter elevate Ruth and not Boaz? Because without Ruth's love in chapter 1, we would have never had Ruth chapter 4. Because if Ruth, if Ruth would have never chosen to love the way she did to Naomi, none of the rest of the stuff would have happened. And God uses this foreigner, widow, poor, young girl to remind the church today that God always, always redeems the ones that are rejected. So it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what you have gone through. God is in the business of making all things new. That it doesn't matter how broken you are, how in inadequate do you, you feel. People, even if people are rejecting you, God is in the business of redemption. That it doesn't matter how many people you have hurt, how wounded you are, God has the power to make all things new. That it doesn't matter how much you have sinned, how many, how many people you have hurt, there's always an opportunity for new beginnings. That your sin, your brokenness, your shame, your guilt don't define you. Because God is the God of great reversals. And that God has put us here to remember and to tell others that God's story never ends with ashes. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. God redeems the rejected. My second point is going to be super fast. I promise. God not only redeems the rejected, but he's the God that transforms resentment to restoration. And I, I want to just spend one minute on Naomi. So Naomi gets this gift, the baby, and everyone is praising the Lord. They're not praising Naomi. They're not praising Ruth. They're praising the Lord because the Lord has provided a guardian redeemer. 
But they said these things to Naomi, Naomi, which is extremely important for us to look at. Verse 15. It says that this baby will renew your life or renew your soul and sustain you in your old age. God is using this baby for the renovation or restoration of Naomi's soul. It's so interesting that you could translate that word as put back together or to refresh or to revive. Listen up, church. It doesn't matter what, how the story started. God threw everything and in the midst of everything took Naomi from bitterness to restoration. Do you guys remember how Naomi introduces herself in Ruth chapter 1? Hello, my name is Naomi. I'm full of bitterness. <laughs> you remember she told the people, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. And her bitterness was creating this resentment toward God. This is crazy. God never corrects her. God never says, how dare you? He faithfully, lovingly, graciously continues to work in her to the point that now God provides for her refreshment, renewal, reviving, and restoration to her soul. God's story never ends with ashes. You know what's amazing about Naomi? She's still a widow. Her husband still died and the kids already died. She's still old. She's still dependent upon somebody else. And yet, her soul is full of life. Because the thing that Christianity provides, the thing that the Lord does, is that he doesn't have to change your circumstances. He does not need to change the things that are outside of you. It is possible for Christians to experience peace, joy, all these things in your soul, even if things don't change outside of you. The promises of the Lord are never that he's going to change your circumstances. The promises of the Lord is that even if he doesn't change your circumstances, inside your soul can experience renewal, uh, refreshment, revive, and restoration. Even if things outside of you never change. See, as Christians, we can say what Disney always say. And we live happily ever after. Even if circumstances don't change. Only God could do that. Only God could revive your soul. From rejection to renewal, from resentment to restoration, and lastly, from ruin to renewal. If you notice at the end of chapter 4, there's a genealogy. And there's a reason there for that genealogy. In that genealogy, it shows us that God was always in control and that he had a plan and a purpose. 
Actually, in verse 17, this is what it says. The, moment, the woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named his name Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You know what other book in the Bible has another genealogy? That includes this genealogy? The Gospel of Matthew. And it is in that genealogy where we find these names, and eventually we find another name, another son of David, Joseph. Joseph, they married another young woman in Bethlehem. And they had a baby, and his name was Jesus. Do you know why the book of Ruth finishes like this? To point us to Jesus. To remind us that every important character in this story is pointing to Jesus somehow. That everything that is beautiful in this story is pointing to Jesus somehow. So, for example, in Luke chapter 1, Jesus is described as the greater and better guardian redeemer, the redeemer of the world. In Galatians chapter 3, Jesus is presented as the redeemers that came to free us from the curse of the law, the consequences of our sin. In, in Titus chapter 2, he presents Jesus as the one that is rescuing us from all wickedness, so we can be free to live for him. In Luke chapter 4, he is described as the person that brought the ultimate jubilee to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, um, to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to come to recover the sight of the blind and to give freedom to the oppressed. The reason why the story of Ruth finishes that way is so we could think and remember Jesus, the one that restores our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. This is crazy. Psalm 23 says that Jesus restores our soul. What Naomi experienced in Ruth chapter 4 was meant to point us to Psalm 23 and to remember that the only one that restores our soul is Jesus, the one that loved better than the love of Ruth, better than seven sons, better than seven husbands, Better than seven jobs. Better than seven friends. Better than seven relatives. Better than anybody. Nobody else loves you the way he does. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he sacrificed himself. That's why he gave it all. If you think that Boaz was amazing, you got to think of Jesus. Do you see him like that? It is only when you have that, that you remember that God's story never ends with ashes. You know how I know that? Because the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees it. God wins. Even if circumstances don't change. Amen? Amen. This is what we want to do. We want to finish this series on our knees. So if it's possible for you to do that, I'm going to invite you to, to kneel as a sign of reference and dependence. as a sign that we are trusting our Lord.
Lord, we understand that our physical posture is a reflection of our internal posture. Lord, we understand that our physical posture is a reflection of our heart. Lord, and today we want to thank you because of Jesus Christ and his love for us, his self-sacrificing love for us. The one that did not think about himself, but he, he thought of us. The one that did not run away from us or hide from us, but came into our mess, into our world, into our pain. The one that did not pretend or was indifferent to our struggle, but came into our world to be with us and to be for us. Lord, I pray that you allow us to have that image, Lord, stamped or, or yeah, stamped in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we can see the magnitude of your love, a better love than the one Ruth displayed. I pray, Lord, that we may remember, Lord, that you truly satisfy our souls. I pray, Lord, that we may be able to see how amazing, how sacrificial, how powerful is your love for us. And I also pray, Lord, that you help us give to others what we have already received. I pray, Lord, that as followers, we do not run away from the world, but that we will go in, into the midst of men. I pray, Lord, that whenever people suffer, we will be there to comfort. I pray, Lord, that whenever people strive, we will be there to help. I pray, Lord, that when people fail, we will be there to uplift. I pray, Lord, that when people in our surroundings succeed, we will be there to rejoice. I pray, Lord, that we may understand that self-sacrifice means, means no indifference. No indifference to our times and our fellow, be, our fellow people, our fellow uh, and our friends. I pray, Lord, that we go into this world and show and proclaim, proclaim your love. I pray, Lord, that we may be people on word and deed because we truly believe that, you, that your story never ends with ashes. Turn us into the people that you want us to be. I pray that for WBC, for Iglesia del Pueblo, for Tri-Village, for the churches in our area, for all the communities and congregations in DuPage, that we may show this world that you are the God of great reversals. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, can you please stand? Let's respond to the Lord in adoration.